We'll be reading Matthew 6, verses 19 to 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one, the one, and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I will tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you eat or what you drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. If not li- is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in, into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow tomorrow will thrown into the oven, is thrown into the oven, will not will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Uh, I'd like to start with the question, uh, what is the driving force in your life? What is the driving force? Uh, All of us, whether we word it that way, we call it that or not, we have a driving force, something from deep within us that determines our values, uh, determines what's important to us, our priorities. Uh, It helps us set our goals. It helps us envision what we want for life. And from within, there's this driving force that moves our life in a certain direction. Uh, We could put that differently, just in uh, different words, but the same meaning, and you hear this a lot at Trinity Grace Church, Uh, what is your deepest affection? Because your driving force in life is what you endear to yourself the most, what you are emotionally attached to, and and therefore we could also say synonymously, what what is your deepest desire? Your, Your driving force in life, if you can identify that, and again, all of us have it, And if you can identify what that is, you'll find that there's a a real connection to uh, what you desire, what what you like. And in fact, we could simply say, what is your deepest love? Your driving force at the end of the day is about what you love most deeply. 
Now, this could even be something negative. Let's say the driving force in your life, <clears throat> excuse me, is your past wounds and bitterness and so forth that is moving your life in a certain direction. And functionally speaking, whether you like to admit it or not, you are loving your past. You are letting your past determine the course of your life. And so functionally speaking, maybe you might not have a warm, fuzzy feelings towards your past, but you are functionally speaking giving your past highest priority and therefore loving it the most, and it is your deepest affection, and without, it's not a good desire, but it is your desire. Now, to put a different spin on this, uh, especially in this day and age, in 2020, and especially in a city like Toronto, on one hand, living by your desires, living by what you feel, it's heralded, it's celebrated. Um, we hear so often, part of just the milieu of our culture is, be true to yourself, and whatever you feel, follow it, and that'll work out for you. But there's that age-old debate that should life just be about desire and, and what you feel and what you want, or should there be some balance to it with duty? Or in fact, no, life should only be about duty. And older generations, especially World War II and, and those years and so forth, where there was a lot at stake in the world, duty was prized. Duty, just commitment, cold commitment to what is right and true. No matter what you're feeling, you stick to it, be it a marriage, be it uh, just fighting in battle and so forth. And so our culture now, it believes that love should be natural. This is especially characteristic what we call our, our postmodern times. And, and in Toronto, it's definitely a post-Christian time. Now what the gospel does then, where people want to say what's true for me is true for me, the gospel throws a monkey wrench into that idyllic notion. Uh, and, and the gospel says, no, it, it's not one or the other. It doesn't have to be pitted against each other, just duty or desire. It can't just be desire because just as an extreme example, in a heated moment, you might feel that you want to hit someone. And if you just follow that, we know that that is not right. That is not true. But certainly just being, uh, living a life of sheer duty, it, it, it's, there's no life there at times. So I love what the psalmist says. And here I think he's giving a picture of the gospel in his own words. As he prays in Psalm 73, Nevertheless, I am continually with you, with God. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And so here's some notion of duty. Here's some notion of truth and, and guidelines, a clear path and boundaries that he looks to for God to direct him on a path of life. And afterward, you will, see, you will receive me to glory. And now listen to these words of desire. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so here he marriages duty and desire. As we delve into Matthew 6, 19 to 34, Jesus, I believe overall at the end of the day, in the big picture, he's speaking to desire today and what we are, how we are to live out of a desire for God and his kingdom and for Christ, and that leads to a dutiful life. And so my best attempt at summarizing, I think, what the gist of what Jesus wants his listeners to hear is, is this in the form of a prayer, and I hope you can learn to pray these words from your own heart with your own words. Lord, help me to choose to love you and your kingdom above all. 
There's the duty. Help me to choose. It's a deliberate choice. It's a commitment. Help me to choose, but there's desire to love you and your kingdom above all. And so for the rest of our time in the passage, I want to ask, how do I deliberately, how do I deliberately love Christ and his kingdom above all? And to unpack and answer that question, I want to answer three more uh, smaller questions that I think are implicit in Jesus' teaching. First, how do I define treasure? Second, what do my savings, and, and yes, maybe your ears are perking up, savings? What do you mean by savings? What do my savings reveal about me? We'll get to that. And how do I demonstrate? How do I demonstrate and live out in a practical, concrete manner that Christ and his kingdom are my greatest treasure? So first, how do I define treasure? I think this is the first question that's in between the lines of what Jesus is teaching. And he gives us some clues. Now getting to verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures. And so here the word lay up, it literally means to store up. And just in modern speak, it means to save. And so we could paraphrase this, do not save for yourself treasures. And this word treasure that Jesus intentionally chooses, it means first literally a deposit. And so certainly as we deposit savings into an account or we deposit funds into an investment and so forth, we could literally think of uh, just in concrete terms, and to apply it practically in our lives today that Jesus is speaking to those things. But treasures here also has the notion of a, a whole, a, just an amassment of savings and treasures, things you have stored up. So it's the whole collection in its entirety. And also, therefore, just a treasury. So it could literally mean your bank account. But not only a bank account, it could be just your, really, in modern speak, your net worth. Just everything that is under your name, all your assets, your home, your car, your clothes, your special china, your, your special crystal cups, right? And, and just whatever it is, whatever heirlooms, your entire net worth minus all your liabilities, this is what the word treasure, practically speaking, could uh, refer to. And Jesus is saying, don't save up to make savings, okay? That's what, how it reads literally. Now, Jesus, he expounds and, and he explains two different types of savings then earthly savings versus heavenly savings and here we see him first address earthly savings do not lay up for yourselves treasures or savings on earth and he qualifies these things that are on earth things that can be destroyed things that can be stolen so let me ask what are you saving in your mind as you consider your storage house of all your, your net worth, all your assets and belongings, what are you saving? Uh, can it grow old? Can it break down? Can it become stolen? And on that point, it, it doesn't have to be something material. A, a position at work can be stolen from you by some scheming colleague or your idea and intellectual property. But are these things, the things that you deem valuable, are they, can they grow old? Can they break down? Can they be stolen? And where are you saving these things? And I think what Jesus wants to get at, ultimately, why are you saving these things? But he also describes heavenly savings. But lay up for yourselves treasures, a, a collection of treasures, a, a saving, a treasury in heaven. And the quality of 
heavenly savings that Jesus is referring to is that they are indestructible. They are untouchably protected. No one can steal them. They're incorruptible. And they're eternal. They last forever. They don't have an expiry date. They, they can't decompose. And so I know at this point, if you're like me, when I was, I was trying to figure out this passage, you might be asking, so what do eternal savings concretely look like? We'll get to that in a little bit. But again, what are you saving then? Why, where are you saving and, and why are you saving the things that you are saving, do they have the qualities of a heavenly saving, that they're incorruptible, indestructible, and untouchably protected, and are they eternal? But one more thing. Notice, Jesus says, but lay up for yourselves. Now, he's not talking about selfishness here, because he repeats this phrase both for earthly and heavenly uh, savings. And so what Jesus is getting at here, he wants to make the point that it's your choice. You get to define what is a treasure for you. It's your choice. So now we need to ask, what do my savings then, what I have deemed as my savings, what I've defined as my treasure, what does it reveal about me? That's what Jesus wants us to ask next. And so we see in verse 21, Jesus, master of words, he's such a word crafter, and he has this beautiful phrase, for where your treasure, meaning your deposits, your saved up treasures, or your treasury is, there your heart will be also. Now first, notice, please just learn this and accept it once and for all. What Jesus cares the most about is your heart. Again, he comes back to the heart. Through the Sermon on the Mount, we see a repeated return to Jesus addressing the heart and wanting his followers to get past just surface uh, behavior. And he wants to deal with the heart. And Jesus says that our savings, be it earthly or eternal, earthly or heavenly, they reveal our true affections, our true desire, our true love, our true driving force in life. Where, wherever, what you have defined as treasure, wherever it is, there your heart will be also. This is what I believe he's getting at. Do you see this stack of bills up there on the screen? This one same object here, two different sets of eyes, two different hearts, two different people can look at this wad of cash in two different ways. One person will look at this and all of a sudden greed bubbles to the surface. Or maybe insecurity, I don't have enough of that. Or do I have enough of that? Or, or security, you think because I have enough of that, I'm strong and secure. Or whatever other reasons. Or it'll just drop whatever is really in your heart. Or you can be like the Backy family. I mention them because just a little bit of TGC history. Uh, TGC, did you know that TGC, when in the early phases of fundraising and so forth, there's a Christian family in the States, and they have what's called the Mustard Seed Foundation, and they donated $12,000 uh, to Trinity Grace's startup fund. And every year, this family gives away approximately $2.5 million every year, 
And that $2.5 million is just interest that's earned every year on their savings that have, were amassed through uh, just success in business. But they make a point every year to give around $2.5 million away, no strings attached, to gospel endeavors, to projects that will proliferate Jesus' name and his gospel. And so another set of eyes, another heart, can look at this same thing, and they see opportunity to do good. They see opportunity to spread Jesus' name and to bring about all the practical machinations of, of making uh, ministry happen. To word it another way, when you look at that picture, do you see a tool or a treasure? This is what Jesus wants us to discern in our own hearts. When we see these material things, do we see a tool or treasure? Let, let's make it clear. God in Scripture, he instructs fiscal responsibility. Jesus is not asking us, some people say Christians are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. And Jesus, he's not calling us to be an irresponsible uh, person who just sells everything and then just lives in pretentious poverty. Yes, to some people, when in, during Jesus' time, like the rich young ruler, ruler he knew that was the exact hurdle, the, the, the block that was keeping this young man from faith. And so Jesus pinpointed that in that person. But as a general rule of thumb, the, the application to this is not that we are all to go and sell everything and live in poverty. Just to balance it out and show you from other scriptures really quickly, Proverbs 13 a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, not just his children, but his grandchildren. Paul instructs to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. Children and grandchildren are supposed to be in a position to be able to provide for the elderly ones in their lives, especially the widows that they love. For this is pleasing in the sight of God to be fiscally responsible and to be able to provide. And Paul elaborates a few verses later, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, his immediate direct family, he has denied the faith. Wow, that's strong medicine. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Again, later on in chapter 6 of the same letter, as for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes. Again, Paul is agreeing with Jesus. It's a matter of your heart, where your affections lie, what you are emotionally attached to, what you define as treasure and what can save you. Don't let the rich instruct them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything. And here's a profound theology. We won't get into it today, but to enjoy. God wants us to enjoy. They are to do good. And so here's Paul taking a cue from Jesus. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That from their surplus, they are ready to let go of that. They're not greedily, miserly hanging on to that as an idol. But they're ready to share. Thus, and so here we see Jesus' idea of a heavenly treasure, a heavenly savings, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the, work, for the future. Again, uh, in a Paul, 
in another letter. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, meaning the Lord's Day, Sunday like us today, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Heavenly savings. Paul was instructing them to bring together whatever resources, money, whatever grain and so forth, and to put aside and he would come and he instructs as he may prosper, meaning according to your ability. And Paul would come by, pick it up and deliver it to those in need. And again in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul instructing him, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, meaning a thief who has given his life to Christ, has repented, and let him do honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so again, as you think of all your resources, your net worth, is it a tool or is it your treasure? Have you set your heart so much on it that your savings you're looking to, to actually save you? To make the point and to make his argument more, all the more, Jesus describes the eye and the power of our eyes as a filter for how we see things. Again, same thing, same resources that we're looking at, but two different sets of eyes, two different hearts, two different affections. And so Jesus explains the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy and you look at the world, you look at your resources, your money, with the right set of eyes, with kingdom eyes, then it'll affect your whole being. You'll feel light. You'll feel joyful to be able to just give generously to the work of the gospel and to those in need. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And pay attention to Jesus' poetic a poignancy here, if then the light in you is darkness. See, that's an oxymoron. If the light in you is darkness, meaning, yes, you're looking out on your riches, and during this lifetime, sure, it might give you some happiness. You think it's a light, but because you're making it your treasure, then in the end, it'll be a darkness. It'll be like you thinking that you're just getting some sun getting a nice tan, but in the end, it has turned into a deadly, fatal cancer. And so Jesus, he gets to the bottom line. He says, see, your relationship with money, and as, a, as an aside, Jesus talks about money and resources and treasures more than hell. And I think I know why, because he knows that's one of the greatest stumbling blocks between us and faith. And he needs to deal with what will either get us to hell or keep us from hell. And so he boils it down. The bottom line, this is an issue of love. No one can serve two masters, verse 24, for either he will hate the one and love. And, and Jesus' choice of, of word love there is agape love, to self-sacrificially serve. He'll either hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And, and money, it, it's too narrow of a translation. The word that Jesus chooses is mammon, and it just it broadly covers everything material. Basically, net worth. Everything that you own that is tangible, that is concrete, that, that is to your name, that you perhaps are tempted to find security in. 
That's what Jesus means. You cannot serve God and everything material. And so it's a, it's a matter of love. So practically speaking then, how do I demonstrate that Christ and his kingdom are my greatest treasure? For the Christ follower today, I hope that you're being moved by the Spirit and his word that, okay, I want to see everything in my life as a tool for his purposes and good. I want to make Christ and his kingdom my greatest treasure, so how do I walk toward that? And for those of our friends here who haven't placed their faith in Christ yet, this is the invitation that you can be free from all the cares of this world and live in in such a way that you're not just living for this life, that your happiness and success isn't just temporary during your lifetime here, but it can extend into eternity. So how do we live into that? So Jesus... We need to pay attention because he now starts a conclusion. Verse 25, therefore, he's concluding everything he's talked about from verse 19 to 24 up to this point. And so now he's saying, pay attention. Here's the bottom line. Here's the conclusion. And he says, I tell you. He actually gives us a litmus test to know whether we're making Christ and his kingdom our greatest treasure or not. I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. There it is. That's the litmus test. And, and he starts broad, the entirety of life. And so I, I, I feel permission to ask of all of us today, yes, he gets specific about what we'll eat, what we'll wear, but first he talks about all of life. And so let me ask, and this is rhetorical, you don't need to raise your hand. Do you have anxiety today? Do you struggle with anxiety? And I'm not saying that from a pedestal. I myself struggle with anxiety. I find anxiety creep up in my heart. Just even yesterday before the men's breakfast in the morning before I left, my heart was racing and I felt nervous for some reason. I didn't even know why. And, and, and so I just asked my wife and my kids, hey, dad's feeling anxious. Can you pray for me that, that, that God could be bigger in my life than whatever it is that I'm anxious about? And they prayed for me and And on the car ride to the church building, just my heart calmed down. But my point being, I struggle with anxiety too. We need to pay attention to this litmus test. Jesus, he in fact commands. He says, it's your choice. Do not be anxious. Your choice, whether you're going to be anxious or not. Now that sounds offensive to some people. But let's lean in and let's just listen to what Jesus has to say. And he goes on to talk about being anxious about food and clothing. Now, before we get to uh, just uh, connecting that to to our anxiety connected to material needs and so forth, I want you to know this. And, And this blew my mind this week as I was preparing. Verse 27. Look at Jesus' heart. And which of you by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life. I want you to get Jesus' point here. Do do you realize what he's saying? What he's saying is, I want you to live on this earth as long as possible. I don't want you to needlessly shorten your life. Yes, the truest life and final and ultimate life is eternal life, in God's kingdom or 
under God's wrath forever in hell. But what God is saying, even as wonderful and as eclipsing as life in the new creation is, in God's perfect love, doing life as he always meant it to be, Jesus is saying, I want you to live this life as long as possible. I want you to make the most of this life. And so Christians aren't supposed to have just a, a defeated, fatalistic attitude like, oh, what's the point of this life? It, I just want Jesus to come back right now because it's so depressing here. It's so hard. No, Jesus wants us to make the most of this life first as his witness and test, having a testimony unto Christ and, and trying to see as many people come to Christ as possible before he returns. But just even for your sheer enjoyment. So please see the heart of Christ. And now here we begin to see some concrete clues of how we are to demonstrate that, that we're really putting Christ in his kingdom first. In verse 28, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Let's slow down there and just really chew on what Jesus is saying. Is he saying that these lilies, they were dressed more beautifully than Solomon. Yes, Jesus is saying that. But is Jesus wanting you to say therefore for you to believe that the clothes that you're wearing on your back right now, like if you trust God, then you, because God cares more for you than these lilies, that the clothes on your back are even better than Solomon's. Because that would be the logical conclusion, right? But there's something there that doesn't make sense as well because Solomon's wardrobe is far more. The, the wardrobe of a king that probably had gold threads, you know, and, and just made by the, 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 the highest, most repute, repute, uh, reputed seamstresses and designers of his time. Our, our clothes on our back compare nothing to the wardrobe of King Solomon. So what is Jesus saying then? What's the difference between the lilies and Solomon? And it's there in verse 30. But if God so clothes, who dressed the lilies? God did. Who dressed Solomon? Solomon did. From his wealth, his power, from within his heart to boast, and to laud, Solomon dressed himself. And so what Jesus is getting at now, whenever he teaches, there's multi-layers. And now he's, he's in all his, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there's always something we know because we have the whole Bible now and in hindsight and the Spirit revealing and knowing God's revealed plan. We know that Jesus is getting at something deeper. Jesus is saying you can be clothed with something other than material, that will make you more beautiful and precious than King Solomon in all his earthly robes. Jesus continues to unpack this and explain it. In verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, to be clothed well, and they get anxious about it. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, it doesn't come out in the English, but in the Greek, 
Jesus uses two different words for those two words seek. In the English, it sounds the same, but in the Greek, his listeners would have heard two different things. The Gentiles, how they seek is epizeteo. That's the Greek word, to wish for, to clamor after, to strive. That's the meaning of the word. But when Jesus said, seek first his kingdom, it's just zeteo, and it means worship, crave, in, in the, craving the most purest thing, desiring from the deepest place of your affections. And so just to bring up an image from last week, again, imagine two staircases, either trying to get to the top of the world, but even trying to get to the top of the world, I believe, whether you like to admit it or not, all of us are trying to get to God, to be found right before God. And so imagine these two staircases trying to get to God, and on the left is epizeteo. It's all of yours and my storing up and striving and trying to store up earthly savings, defining that as our treasure, as our security, that our savings could actually save us. And we're writhing and striving, working so hard to climb, 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 and thinking that it will save us before God. And on the right side is Zeteo, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness first. And Jesus, he left all the riches of heaven. Just come back to the beautiful gospel story. He left the riches of heaven. He came down. He shed all his riches, whatever heavenly robes and garment he had there, his status, he shed it all. And then for you and I on this earth, he obeyed God. He climbed back up that staircase. And while doing that, having shed his heavenly stature, even on earth now, literally being stripped naked of his clothes, being nailed to a cross for you and me. Because when he got to the top, he said, Father, I've, I've climbed back up and obeyed you, fulfilled all righteousness, because I want to take Albert's place. I want to take and put your name there. I want to take this precious person's place become their righteousness. And so you and I then, we piggyback on Jesus by faith, by grace, through faith. We are in union with Jesus, and, and therefore now we are clothed in Jesus' righteousness. That's supposed to dissipate all anxiety. And we use whatever God has given us and whatever skills and abilities God has given us to multiply and amass, we use it for good works by grace through faith. And so Jesus concludes in verse 34. He repeats it again. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. And here there's just a very practical principle too. Jesus is saying, just take it one day at a time. What is anxiety? Anxiety is when your stresses or your problems, they appear bigger than your ability to handle them. And then you start to feel anxious. And you even feel physical uh, symptoms of that. And so how do we fight anxiety? Just even secular psychologists, the way they fight anxiety is to point you to something beautiful, true, and actions that begin to make your stresses and problems look smaller. So they, they're pointing you to something more beautiful, more truer, more good, and, and even techniques and actions, habits 
that are good, that, that make your stresses and problems feel smaller. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, if you set your hopes, if you define as your treasure, if you just have at least one moment a day where you're imagining the beauty of the new creation, imagining what life will be like with God forever, imagining being Jesus' glorious bride as church, and also therefore now overflowing backward uh, unto life on this earth before that eternity, thinking about, okay, then how much more can I be used to, to spread this good news, to spread this joy? When we seek God and his kingdom first, set our affections on Christ, then anxiety, and just take it one day at a time by his grace, anxiety will, will dissipate. It will become smaller and smaller and smaller. So I offer you, um, this is not law. This is not, um, well, some of it is, one-third of it is. But the 10-10-80 principle, and this is what I was taught by a mentor, and Linda and I have been trying, doing our best to live by this. And 10-10-80 can also stand for joy, J-O-Y. And J stands for Jesus, O stands for others, and Y stands for yourself. And Scripture gives a guideline, a tithe, 10%. 10% right off the bat, whatever of your earnings, give back to God. You're giving back to Him. And it, and it tests your heart. It tests your trust. Where, what have you defined as your treasure? Your earthly savings or heavenly savings? And, and if it's heavenly savings, it'll be easier to give back to God because you know it's from Him in the first place. That's in Scripture. And based on your situation, I think in the New Covenant, there is room. It, it's, it's not a hard, fast rule. I mean, if you can live by that, I think it's ideal. But given your situation, as you're trying to uh, wisely budget, whatever percentage, but commit to that and, and, and honor that before God. And then, as a good test of your heart, uh, we try to set apart 10% to give out to others whether it be missionaries, whether it be charities, or, or just hosting, and so forth. We do our best. And then the rest 80%, feel free to just take care of yourself. First, be responsible, pay your taxes, pay your bills, uh, and even saving for the future in the sense of you not wanting to be a burden on your family in the future. That, that's, that's something good and wise. And also we see in Paul's instruction to the rich, yes, we're allowed to enjoy, but, but just make sure our heart is right in enjoying and going on that vacation and, and w enjoying whatever uh, fancy meal and so forth. Just keep your heart in the right place. And just as even a, a greater goal, uh, Rick Warren has this testimony. He's a pastor in California, and perhaps you've read his book, The Purpose Driven Life. Uh, he had always longed to become a reverse tither. He wanted to live on 10% and give away 90. And with the success of his book, Purpose Driven Life, that became possible. And so that's his testimony is that that's what he does. And as far as people can see, his lifestyle has not changed one bit. And he lives on 10 and gives away 90. What he calls reverse tithing. And so I just leave with you a thought from him just to end. When we die, we will not leave our home. If we look at our home as our earthly saving, it'll be hard to leave our home. No, we won't be leaving our home. We will be 
going home. So Lord, help me to choose to love you and your kingdom above all. Amen.